0: Could turn your Bible to Genesis chapter two. We got a lot to do today. A lot to do. Let me just say this: um, for those of you who don't know me, this is um, my name's Shane Willard. This is all I do for a living. We travel around and. Um, Preach. In the next 12 months, we should be in eight different nations. That's that, uh, pretty exciting. Um, and so we live completely by faith. So we don't make demands on anybody. I do submit to the authority of three different pastors from three different places. And we also have a board of men, but we don't get a salary from anywhere. And so it's completely by the love offerings and through our resource table. Um, at the back there to the right um, I've had the privilege of being mentored by a pastor who happens to have all of his rabbi training for the last eight years. And um, so we've, we've put a lot of different topics back there that will change the way you look at God forever. Okay, let me just tell you about a couple of them. Um, I just finished this one. This is called The Jewish Roots of Easter. It's an Easter conference. It's got five CDs in there and one DVD. The DVD is a Passover. So there's an actual Passover meal in DVD that we did that you can sort of see. And it makes the the whole story of the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection, all of that come alive. You could pick that up. Also, we just um, finished one called Great Big God. It's on DVD only, um, and it talks about all kinds of different things. Um, the Jewish wedding and, um, and, and the whole thing about the day Jesus comes back. It's not a real big mystery to them. They sort of, they sort of know the day. So um, you can if you want to know the day Jesus is coming back, you can pick that up back there. Um, <clears throat> we, we have a whole, uh, just a whole lot of sort of different things. I mean, we, we have a thing on, on how the Jews do their money. Um, now you can say whatever you want to say about Jewish people, but Jewish people know how to win, okay? In the face of awful oppression, they know how to win. And so if we do what they do, we'll have what they have. And so that, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, almost anything. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology. So we have a bunch of those back there. So if you're real messed up in your head, you can check that out too. Um, come, Just come check it out. Now, obviously, um, there's some profit margin built into this. And let me tell you what we use it for. Um, in a situation like this where the love offering will cover our expenses and all that, um, what we do is we use the uh, profit from the resource table to help us us fulfill our mission to minister in places that can't afford it as well as feed and clothe the poor. So um, you could do two things on your way out to go to lunch. Before you go to lunch and put food in your belly, I'm just going to ask you to come by there and grab one thing that'll put food in your spirit, that'll revolutionize the way you look at God. And also it'll help us fulfill our mission in those ways as well. The only other thing I want to say before we get started is um, we have um, started our e-mentoring program um, once a month. I'm going to be online in a classroom um, teaching the things that my rabbi taught me. So if you're if you're a serious Bible student and you want to take it um, to to another place, um, it's not meant to replace anything you're doing. It's just meant to supplement it. Um, you can check out our website and um, begin to come in there. I'd love to see you um, in there. Okay, Genesis chapter two. What I want to talk to you. We're going to get there in a second. What I want to talk to you about today is a very important topic. I to. I got enamored uh, a couple months ago. With the whole cross and the crucifixion and and the resurrection. I went back and I read it. And I started looking for all kinds of Hebrew pictures and idioms and things like this. And anything I could find in there that made the story come alive. And so I want to talk to you a a bit about that today. But we got to understand before we get into that. That that this is what's true. That the cross and the resurrection is not as much about. Forgiveness. It is about forgiveness. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But it doesn't end with forgiveness. The, the cross and the resurrection is also a story about a public defeat of a way of living. Uh, one writer later in the New Testament says that, that, that Jesus defeated the ways of this world publicly on the cross. So, in other words, that the cross wasn't just about forgiveness, the cross was about me and you living something differently. Now, let, me, let me say it this way. Let's see if I can come up with a better way to explain that. That there's actually two crosses. There's a cross that Jesus bore for us that we could not bear. That we owed a debt we could not pay. Jesus paid that debt for us. There is a truth about that. There's a cross that he bore. That, and the reason he bore it is because we could not. At the same time, there's a cross that he called us to bear because we can. He called us to pick up a cross Daily. So so here's my question as we start this out. Is there any place in your life where you've embraced the cross that saves you, but you've neglected the cross you've been commanded to pick up? Is there any place in your life that you've embraced the cross that forgives you, but you've neglected the cross that says we need to give mercy and forgiveness to other people? Is there any place in your life where you want mercy for yourself, but justice for everybody else? Is there any place you want mercy for yourself but justice for everybody else? Is there anywhere you find yourself at the cross going, God, give me mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. But then you look around and you see other people at the same cross and you say, God, get them. (laughs) So so do we want mercy for ourselves and justice for everybody else? This is not what this was about. This was about... A lifestyle. This was about a lifestyle of mercy and grace and forgiveness. This was about a lifestyle of generosity. This was about a lifestyle of giving yourself for other people. This wasn't just about going to heaven one day. See, if we're not careful, Christianity has lost a lot of its credibility because of this. Christianity has taught salvation as come to an altar, say a prayer, suffer through life, die. It'll all get better then. That's how we do it. Come to an altar, say a prayer, suffer through life, die, and you all get to go to heaven then. And so we made salvation all about getting to heaven one day. Is there truth in that? Yes. Is that the whole truth? No, that salvation to these people was not just going to heaven one day. Salvation was living slave driver free today. It was about being delivered from the things driving your life, not so that you could just be delivered, but so that you could share that life with other people. Let me summarize it in a nutshell. That Jesus died on the cross for you, not to just forgive you of your sins, but to empower you to be nice to other people. That, now, that's some revelation. You got out of bed this morning for that one. That, that Jesus died to empower us to be who we really are. See, anytime you're put in a situation where something is trying to force you out of what you really are, it's very uncomfortable. It, anytime you're put in a situation where you're forced to put on an image, listen, there's two, you have two choices, really. You can live out of who you really are, which Jesus recreated you in righteousness and true holiness, which means the real you is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness. That's the real you. Or you can live out of an image that you've created to impress people you don't like. You can live out of an image. And listen, anything that forces you to live out of an image is uncomfortable they, they, there's this fad that, that's going around. It's starting to die out a little bit, but it was really going around big time. And the fad was called skinny jeans. Skinny jeans. You guys know skinny jeans are skinny jeans are jeans that men wear that are actually cut for women. Okay? They they, they hug their legs and it's very uncomfortable looking, um, and not nice to look at. Really? There's not. Listen. Is there really anything that attractive about a male body? Really? I mean, come on. So. So so anyway, but they're they're in style and they're cool, you know? And so I was doing this conference and and and, and all the band was wearing them stuff, and they and we got to the green room and, and I said, um they said, Shane, man, you gotta get you some skinny jeans, man. Like you're too cool not to be wearing skinny jeans. And I said, but they look really uncomfortable. They said, No, they're not, they're stretchy and they're this, that, the other. So they take me out to this shop called Diesel. Okay, they take me out to this shop called Diesel, which Diesel's evidently the mecca of skinny jeans, right? So I walk into the shop and they said, We're going to pay for this. I start looking at the, they're $500 jeans. I mean, this is, I mean, it's not, not cheap stuff, but they were paying for it, so whatever. So, so, so I get in there and the girl said, Can I help you? I said, Listen, I want the fattest pair of skinny jeans you possibly have. <laughs> I want the skinny jeans that are for fat guys, right? She said, Okay, so she gets me the fattest pair of skinny jeans she can and she gets me a shirt to go with it. And I go in to, to try it on. And so this is not the real me. This is an image that I'm being forced to sort of try. So I get into this, into this, into this dressing room, and I squeeze myself into these jeans. Like, I can't hardly breathe. I get them on, and, and once they get to the top, you can button them fine, because it's just how they're cutting the legs and whatnot. So I button them fine, but I still am so uncomfortable. I put on this really tight-fitting shirt. And 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 so and so I kind of get comfortable and stretch it sort of a little bit. And I look in the mirror and I thought, okay, this is okay. So I I walk back out, and y'all, there was no words. You gotta watch my face here, because there was no words. When I walk back out, the girl who was helping, and then the people who were buying, I walked back out and did this. (laughs) And this is exactly what the girl did. She went. (laughs) And so I went back in. (laughs) I went back into the, the dressing room to take off the skinny jeans and I started feeling sorry for myself. And I started, I started thinking, I had thoughts like, I'm too old to wear cool jeans. And I'm too chunky to wear cool jeans. And I started having these self-defeating thoughts. And then I had this moment, I looked at myself in the mirror and I was having this moment and I thought, you're not getting old. Men were designed by God to have room in their pants. And any attempt to make them do otherwise is image, not reality. See, anytime someone forces you to feel like you need to live out of an image, it makes you uncomfortable. And so, so Jesus, this is all I'm talking about this morning, is that Jesus died not so just that we could be forgiven, but that we could be comfortable living out of the real us, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. See, this is a story about a journey from slavery to freedom, from anguish to relief, from bondage to freedom, from darkness to light. Salvation isn't just one day, it's here, now, today. And when we begin to see it like that, it changes our whole perspective in our life. Now, let me start this morning by a- answering a question. Did the resurrection and the crucifixion, did it actually happen? Did it actually happen? Well, of course you say yes. You're in church on Sunday. Hey, listen, did, did, did somebody challenged me on this, and it really, it really helped my life. This is what they said. They, they weren't a believer, obviously. They said, Shane, let me get this straight. So you believe that God sent his son on a suicide mission... But it didn't worry him because he knew that he would rise again on the third day. And you believe this just because the Bible says so. And I thought to myself, this guy doesn't understand. But you know what? I realized that most of us couldn't give an answer to that without looking stupid. So let me see if I could help us with that. That that statement misses two important things. One, it totally discounts the fact that the Bible has historical validity. It it, it treats the Bible as some spiritual book that's all written on a level of analogy. That's what it treats it as. And and anytime you're dealing with with a book that's dealing on a level of analogy, you can manipulate it here and there. But it it totally discredited the historical validity of the Bible. Number two, it, it infers the fact that the Bible is one document. Like, okay, so what he was inferring was, we have this one book called the Bible, and the beginning seems to indicate that we need a Savior, and the end seems to indicate we need a Savior. So they manipulated the middle to make the beginning and the end fit. And you know what? If the Bible was one book, he would have a good point. But here's what he's missing. The Bible's not one book. And listen, let me help you with something. Christians do not believe in the resurrection simply because the Bible says so. It's not that simple because the Bible is not just one book. The Bible is 66 books. It's 66 books, okay? And it has historical validity. Listen, when you send your children to school, they study history, hopefully. All of our world history books come from mainly two sources, the Gallic Wars and Tacitus' work. So you got a guy, a, 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 a historian named Tacitus who wrote about the Caesars for them, and you got a guy that wrote the Gallic Wars. The Gallic Wars, we have five copies of those manuscripts, and our world history books are based on them. Tacitus's work, we have nine copies of his manuscripts, and our world history books are based on them. Now let me ask you a question further. If our world history books are based on Tacitus' work, and Tacitus was employed by Caesar to write about the Roman Empire, do you think it's possible that Some of his writings would have been biased in favor of Caesar. Why? Because he'd have got his head cut off otherwise. Right, So we have five manuscripts of the Gallic Wars, nine manuscripts of Tacitus' work. We base our entire world history book based on them, and no one questions whether or not it's valid. Yet, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, we have 5,000 manuscripts of them, and they all say roughly the same thing for roughly the same thing, and it wasn't about a Caesar. It was about a Jewish carpenter who happened to be a rabbi. So so these things survived. Listen, if, if you put the resurrection on trial and you were the jury and I was the lawyer, here would be my case. Number one, you have seven sworn witnesses that it happened. In the New Testament, seven different men wrote in their writings that they either saw it happened or they talked to enough people who saw it happen that it was credible. Here were the four men. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, and Peter. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, and Peter. So, you have four businessmen, Jesus' brother, a Jewish Jewish theologian, and you have a medical doctor. All seven of these people said that there was clearly enough evidence. Either they saw it with their own eyes, or they heard enough testimony to say, Wait a minute, no, this happened. Let me make it even further. Of these seven witnesses, 5,000 of their manuscripts survived. Now, if you talk to anybody about textual criticism, about any piece of literature, if you have 5,000 manuscripts that did survive, you've got a ton more over 2,000 years who didn't survive. So the fact that 5,000 manuscripts survived about the witness of seven people actually bodes very, very well. Bodes very well. Number three, they were not predisposed to believe in the resurrection. None of them were predisposed to believe in it. So it wasn't like they wanted to believe it so bad that they had to go find it. It wasn't that at all. As a matter of fact, it was the exact opposite. Every time Jesus tried to warn them that the resurrection and the crucifixion and all of that was going to take place, every time they just didn't get it. It always says that they didn't understand what he was saying. Like there was one really embarrassing one where where Jesus is having a real sort of gut-wrenching moment with them. He's like, don't you understand That the Son of Man is going to suffer at the hands of men. It's going to be horrible. He's going to die. But when you see these things, do not fret because He's going to rise again. And He's just having this heart-wrenching moment. And one of the disciples goes, can I ask a question? Jesus says, yes. When we're in heaven one day, can I sit at your right hand instead of your left? And Jesus goes, you don't. Get it? See, none of these people were predisposed. They were surprised when Jesus rose from the dead. As as a matter of fact, um, all the disciples fled when he died. They weren't like they were sitting there. And there was two guys who buried Jesus. Where did they? It was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Where did they bury Jesus? In a tomb. Why? Because they thought he was going to stay dead. They didn't believe in three days he was going to rise again. Or they'd have taken him to his house and set him up at the table like Weekend at Bernie's. A <laughs> bit awkward, but you have guests every house? Oh, don't mind him. He's, he's dead. He'll get up in three days. Just sort of stretching him out. Why? Because they believed he was going to stay dead. They, they, they weren't predisposed to believe this stuff. Number four, all of their writings got them killed or exiled. It wasn't like they became popular because of this. They were either killed or exiled. And and in some of their situations, history history tells us, that they were given a chance to keep their life if they would just say that they didn't see what they saw. So they believed what they saw so much that they were willing to die or be exiled for it. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not as simple as saying, I believe it just because the Bible says so. If you're a Christian here today and you believe it, it's not just because the Bible says so. It's because there's seven different witnesses who in their writings declared this is true. Four businessmen, a Jewish theologian, the Lord's brother, and, and a medical doctor gave written testimony that this happened. They weren't predisposed to believe it, and their testimony got them killed if they would have just recanted. So so the idea that this happened is true. Now, why did it happen? Did it happen just so that you could be forgiven? No. It happened so that we could live a different form of life, so that Bay City Outreach Center could be a place in this community that sheds the life of what the light of the cross is all about. That's what it's about. Now in that, there's some serious imagery that comes around. Some serious imagery that comes around. In John chapter 19, verse 33 through 34. John chapter 19, verse 33 through 34. It says this. It says, but when they came to Jesus and found that his, he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. A sudden flow of blood and water. Now, there's, there's a lot of imagery here. The, the first imagery is, you have to understand Passover lambs. Passover lambs, which Jesus was, Passover lambs, it's outlined in the Mishnah how they treated them. And when they prepared a Passover lamb, they did so with two stakes, two wooden stakes. A vertical stake and a horizontal stake. They did that, you had to prepare a Passover lamb in a way that broke no bones. So they would, they would put him on the vertical stake in a way that broke no bones. They would, they would then insert a horizontal stake that would spread him out. Why? Because the Torah said that when you cook a Passover lamb, you have to cook it in such a way where the fluid doesn't bubble up on the meat. So they would spread him out in such a way where the fluid would naturally fall off of him. They would lacerate his side with stripes so that it would open up his side so that the extra blood and water would flow out. They would take the entrails of the Passover lamb and they would make a crown and put it on the Passover lamb's head. This is all outlined in the Mishnah way, way, way before Jesus. The the, the last thing they would do when a Passover lamb was being cooked is just to make sure that all the extra body fluids was out of its body. They would take a knife and they would puncture its side in a way that broke no bones. They would puncture its side and pierce the heart and any excess stuff in the heart would then fall out. It would then fall out. And so all of this was going on to say, wait a minute, this is the Passover lamb. So there was that aspect to it. But there's a specific imagery of blood and water that I think really speaks to us today. And this imagery goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 through 12. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 through 12 says this. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was called Pishon. And it winded through the entire land of Havilah, where there was gold. And the gold was perfect. So it says this, that there there was a river called Pishon. And it winded through the entire land of Havilah, And and, and you could tell because the river was full of gold and and the gold was perfect. Now, there's a lot going on here. The, The word Pishon means hope. The word Pishon means hope. So it says this, it says, out of Eden flowed a river called Hope. And that river winded through the entire land of Havilah. The the word Havilah means suffering. Suffering. So so when a Hebrew person reads Genesis chapter 2 verse 10, what they read is, is that there's a river called Hope that's always flowing in the land of Suffering. In other words, if you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope flowing somewhere in it. You just got to go find it. The the Talmud says that that Adam and Eve spent 40 days with their feet in the river Pishon after they were thrown out of the garden. Why? Because they were in the land of suffering and they needed to remind themselves that hope was flowing through it. One of the ideas of the cross is this, is that hope flows through suffering. Hope always flows through suffering. Anytime you're in the land of suffering, in the land of transition, in the land of the wilderness, in the land of the desert. Anytime you're in places like that, there's always a river called hope flowing somewhere in it. You just got to go find it. The problem is, is, is that there's more than one river in those places. There's a river called give up. There's a river called blame everybody else. There's a river called get critical, there's, there's a river called, you know, just, just, just spread as much turmoil and chaos as you possibly can. There's, there's a river called all of these things, but those aren't the rivers you're looking for. The river you're looking for is the river called hope. And it says you can know that you found the river of hope because there's perfect gold there. Now, this is so unbelievably cool. When you put gold, perfect gold, in water, it makes a colloidal suspension and it turns it all blood red. I was preaching something like this in Perth and there was a scientist there and he was moved to tears and he took me to his lab and he did it for me. He took four or five nanoparticles of gold, a nanoparticle is a billionth of a gram. He took four or five nanoparticles of gold and he put it in a colloidal suspension of water and he put it in a vial and it looked like I was carrying my blood sample around with me. I used to carry it with me to preach something like this, but I was was landing in a plane once and the pressure blew it up. It just like this. So, but, but it looked like red cordial. It looked like, it looked like a deep red Kool Aid. It looked like a blood sample. So, so think about this. If the river called Hope is winding through the entire land of suffering, how do you know which one's the river of hope? Well, if, if, if the river of hope has gold in the riverbed, what color is the river? Red. Red. The, the word gold is interesting. Every Hebrew letter is a picture, so every Hebrew word is a comic strip. There are three letters in the word gold. Three letters. The first letter is an eyeball, like this, like an eye. Second letter is a man harvesting supply. And the third letter is a house or a house of God. So you got an eyeball, a man harvesting supply, and a house or a house of God. So when a Hebrew person reads the word gold, this is what they read Behold, the one who brings us substance for survival. Brings it to us in the house of God. Behold, the one who brings the substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God. So when a Hebrew person reads Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, this is what they read Hope flows through suffering because behold, the one who brings the substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God through a river of blood. Hope flows through suffering. When the water is turning red, it means that hope is flowing. Fast forward. This same group of people end up being through a series of hugely unfortunate events. This same group of people end up as slaves in Egypt. There's a bunch of them, millions of them. They end up as slaves in Egypt. God decides to rescue them from their suffering. And it says, they cried out to God in their suffering and God chose to rescue them from it. He says they cried out to God in their suffering. What was the first plague? God puts puts ten plagues on the Egyptians in order to let his people go. What was the first one? All the water turned to blood. To the Egyptians that was a curse. But to the Hebrew people, there would have been a buzz in the camp. Hey, did you hear? Water's turning red. Hope's fixing to flow in our situation. Hope is fixing to flow in suffering. Hope's fixing to flow in our transition. Hope's fixing to flow in our wilderness experience. Hold on a second. Hope is on the way. Through a series of events, these people get out of Egypt. What do they have to walk through to get out of Egypt? The Red Sea. Hope flows through suffering. Red water. Red Sea, hope flows through suffering. They get to the base of Sinai. Have you ever seen Mount Sinai? It's quite large. God calls Moses up the mountain. It's about a three and a half, four hour walk. God calls Moses up the mountain. Moses walks up there. God says, oh, I forgot to tell you to bring Aaron. Go back down and get him. Which, that would have been an interesting conversation. Like, Moses could have said, um, you're God. Can you, like, you know, beam him up here? You know, can you, can you pull some Obi-Wan Kenobi thing? And just, I mean, that's a long walk. So, anyway, see, so, so he walks back down to get Aaron. And what does he find? He finds that they have already made a gold cow. And he gets so angry, he beats the gold cow into powder, And he takes the gold powder and he throws it into the water coming out of the rock. And what does he make them do? He makes them drink it for the remission of their sins. When he put the gold into the water, what happened? It turned red. Hope flows through suffering. Uh, Think about when a baby is born. A woman goes into labor, into suffering. And what mixes together? Blood and water. When blood and water mix together, no matter how bad the suffering is, there's a bundle of joy at the end of it. The imagery is endless. Uh, Wait wait later. There's a rabbi comes along. People are wondering if he's the one. People are wondering, wait a minute, is this the one? He shows up. Now, there's a law in Hebrew hermeneutics. uh, Hermeneutics is just a way of interpreting literature, a way of interpreting life. So, there's a law in it. It's called the law of first mention. What it simply says is, is that the first time something's mentioned defines all other mentions of it. And so it says that he shows up at a wedding to perform his first miracle. So, his first miracle is going to define the purpose of all the other miracles. He shows up to, to do his first miracle. What was his first miracle? He turned all the water into wine. Well, what was his purpose? What was his point? Was his main point to provide adult beverages for the party? No. His main point was to say to a group of people, you were living in suffering. Hope is on the way. I am here now. Hope flows through suffering. Three years later, they kill him. They kill him. And at the end of his life, they stick a spear in his side. Why? Because he was the Passover lamb. But what came out? Blood and water. So at the foot of the cross is a steady flow of blood and water. What does that mean? At the foot of the cross it's more, it's, more a, it's more than about going to heaven one day. It's also about hope flowing through whatever suffering you're going through. If you're in the wilderness, hope flows through suffering. If you're being rejected, hope flows through suffering. If you're going through a divorce, hope flows through suffering at the foot of the cross. If, if everything in your life seems to be in turmoil, hope flows through suffering. If you don't know what the next assignment from God holds, hope flows flows through suffering. If you don't know where you're at, if you're completely lost inside, hope flows through suffering. One of the messages of the cross is this. You don't have to wait to go to heaven one day. The message of the cross is is that wherever you are, the water's turning red. Hope flows through suffering. Bring yourself to the foot of the cross and hope can flow in whatever situation you have. The next image is this. It's called the folded napkin. The folded napkin. Let me me read this from John chapter 20, verse 6 and 7. They had buried him in a tomb, and and so people came to check on him. John chapter 20, verse 6 and 7 says, Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there. And then it makes an extra point. As well as the face cloth that had been around his head, as well as the cloth that had been around his head. And the cloth was folded by itself, separate from the linen. Now, this is huge imagery, huge Hebrew imagery. In in, in first century Hebrew culture, if you invited me to your house for dinner, and I came there, at the end of our night, you would know whether I wanted to come back or not based on this. At the end of our night, if I was done, when I'm done, I would take my face cloth and I would scrunch it. I would fold it up, scrunch it like this, like really like this. And then I would place it on top of the the plate so that when you came around and collected the plates, you would see a scrunched napkin and, you would say, and it would say, hey, he wants to come back. He enjoyed his time here. Um, he wants to continue business with us, whatever your purpose was. But if I did not want to have any more business with you, I would actually take the time to neatly crease and fold my napkin. And I would lay it to the side of the plate separate from everything else. So that when you came around and picked up the plates, you would see the folded napkin and you would know he is no interest in ever doing business with us ever again. His business with us is now done. And it was my way of telling you that without being confrontational, without being confrontational. So that was the custom of the folded napkin. So when they go into Jesus's tomb, when they go into his tomb, and it says that they find his burial clothes here, the strips of linen. But it says that the burial cloth that was around his head, his face cloth, they call it the shroud now. That the face cloth was folded neatly and placed to the side. It was specific imagery that all of them would knew. What was Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, my business with the grave is done. I'm never coming back here again. I don't have any more business with this at all. A, a, a later writer uses this to make fun of the grave. He says, oh, grave, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Don't you know that Jesus has no more business with you? He has conquered and taken away all of your power, all of your power. One of the messages of the cross and resurrection is this, is that death has no sting Grave has no victory. Any place in your life that looks dead, any place in your life that looks dead, it either should be dead or a resurrection's guaranteed. Either one. Either one. Either it's something you need to release, but if it's something that God wants in your life, nothing in your life that God wants in your life can die because Jesus has done business with the grave. It has no power over you at all. That has obvious implications for if you're here today and you've lost a loved one, and you're grieving. If you've done that, I would simply say to you that one of the stories of the cross is this. It's not just about that your loved one is in heaven one day. No, no, no. It's about that you could take hold of the fact that the joy and, and, and the peace that comes with Jesus conquering any power over the grave is the folded napkin. The last imagery I want to talk to you about this morning is this. The last image I want to talk to you about this morning is the dirty Roman sponge. The dirty Roman sponge. There, um, <clears throat> there's this one place. There's this one time in the crucifixion that just doesn't make any sense. Like it truly doesn't make any sense. And here's what it is. It says that Jesus is towards the end. The next verse is when Jesus says, "It is finished. It is finished." Now, in the movies, like in The Passion of the Christ, um, it looks like the cross was six foot in the air. They weren't. Crosses were roughly one foot in the air, so they were roughly about this high. Why? Why would they be this high off the ground? Well, a couple reasons. One, less work for the Romans, one. Two, less work to get them down. But three, they were now close enough to the ground where the people they hurt could come by and spit and ridicule and taunt and do all that sort of stuff. They could could strip them naked, throw dice for their clothes, things like this, okay? And so so they would have been about one foot off the ground. Well, there's this one part in there, and, and it doesn't make any sense. This is what it says. It says, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And someone at the foot of the cross said, I'll go get you something to drink. Now, why doesn't that make any sense? What have they been trying to do all day? Kill him. The worst way humanly possible. So they've spent all day trying to kill him. And yet at the end of it, he goes, I'm thirsty. And they go, we'll try to find you something. That doesn't make any sense. Then it says someone went and they found a sponge on the end of a stick and soaked it in sour wine and vinegar, soaked it in sour wine and vinegar, and they placed it up to Jesus's mouth for him to drink. Jesus turns it away, and then that is the moment he says, It is finished. Doesn't make any sense. <coughs> Excuse me. Doesn't make any sense. And it's the only place in the whole crucifixion story. Have you guys seen the Passion of the Christ? Yes. Did you see it twice? No. Why? You don't handle that, right? Like It's just beatings and beatings and beatings and beatings. But for some reason, when someone went and got the sponge filled with sour wine and vinegar, for some reason, that is when finally the people at the foot of the cross, the Roman centurion, these guys, they go, No! Stop that! He's had enough! Leave him alone! That that, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. That they're trying to kill him all day. Someone goes to get him a drink which makes no sense. Then they offer him a drink and someone stops him and says, you've crossed the line there. Don't do that. Don't do that. What's going on there? And when I found out what was going on there, it broke my heart. It's going to break yours. Because see, the story of the cross is twofold. The story of the cross is about us receiving mercy, receiving hope, receiving our hope flowing through suffering, receiving forgiveness. But the cross is also about offering something back, about living a life that's different. Here's what was going on there. In the first century, they had public toilets, just like they do here. And look, all of us, even driving cars, have had moments where we just couldn't make it home, right? And you have to find a toilet really fast, all right? Same would have been true back then because they walked everywhere and they ate lentils all the time. Okay, so when they did this, a a public toilet was somewhere, I can show you a picture of it. Um, I have it on my machine. A public toilet was about this high off the ground, about as high as this stage is off the ground, and it was made of stone. And where the corner was, where the corner was, they would cut a hole this way around the flat part, and they would cut a hole this way around the bottom part, so you could do either one with ease. Okay? And so, what would happen? Then every every three or four feet was another hole. And this was all out in the public. Like, this was just right there in public sight. They had no shame about this, okay? Now, here was the problem. If you had to go and do something serious, like, let's, you're all, we're all adults, if you had to have a bowel movement, okay? How would you clean yourself? You really only had four options. You had a fig leaf, which isn't very absorbent, right? You, had, you could find a handful of moss and give it a go that way. That's kind of disgusting and messy. right? You could use your left hand, which is equally disgusting. All right? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I speak baby. (laughs) Or what happened was, is the beggars found a way to make extra money with tips. And what they would do is they would find sponges and they'd put them on the end of sticks. And they'd come up behind people. And after they were done, they would clean their rear ends for them. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. One sponge, 100 rear ends, you got a problem, right? I mean, seriously, can you imagine the guy at the end of the line? Hey, can you at least turn it around? Can you do something? Like... <laughs> so you had all kinds of problems. So what they did was, is they found a way to sterilize the sponge between uses, and they used it with spoiled wine and vinegar. They would mix spoiled wine and vinegar together in a bucket. And between uses, they would put the sponge into that bucket. And the bucket would pull the bacteria and it would, it would sterilize it. Okay? So when Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Someone was cruel enough at the foot of the cross to say, you're thirsty? I'll get you something to drink. And he went to the public toilet, and he found a sponge on a stick that was soaked with sour wine and vinegar. What did that mean? That it was a used one. They went and found used toilet paper, soaked it in sour wine and vinegar, and they shoved it up toward his face. Do you see now why someone had enough compassion to go, leave him alone? That's enough. You see why now that is the moment where Jesus went, it is finished. I can't do anything more. Let me ask you a question. Is there any place in your life where you're receiving the benefits of the cross, but your offering back to Jesus is a dirty Roman sponge? Listen, when you come to the cross with a humble heart, wanting what the cross has to offer you, and deeply desiring to give that message to the world, then hope will always flow through suffering. But the way the Jews thought is this, is anytime you're at an altar, it's about what the sacrifice can do for you, but it's also about what you're offering back. And my question is this, is are you receiving mercy for all of your sins, yet your offering back to Jesus actually is a dirty Roman sponge? If I could show you the imagery of it, if you take a dirty Roman sponge soaked with sour wine and vinegar and put it on the end of a stick and you lift it up to Jesus and shake it in his face, all it does is come back on you. That's all it does. When you're offering back to Jesus, stinks, it only affects your life. You still get the effects of the cross. These are the people that Jesus is going, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Those are the same people that God is forgiving completely. But the question is this. Is there any place where you have received the forgiveness of the cross, yet when you look at your life, it's simply a dirty Roman sponge being offered back to God? One of the messages of the cross is this. Is may our life be a sweet-smelling offering in his nostrils. That's what they wanted. They wanted at, at, Listen, you've got to understand Hebrew imagery. Jesus died at exactly the ninth hour. At the ninth hour of every day, the priest would break incense through the temple and proclaim, Lord, let our life rise as a sweet-smelling incense in your nostrils. In other words, Jewish people wanted their life to smell right before God. This is an incredible imagery. One of the imageries of the cross is this, is let your life smell sweet to Jesus, not like a dirty Roman sponge. I would challenge you today to not just receive the benefits of the cross, but actually allow the kingdom of God to be established in you so that our offering back to Him is sweet and not a dirty Roman sponge. Not a dirty Roman sponge. I bless you today to be a group of people fully aware that no matter where you are, no matter what suffering you're in, hope is on the way. The water is red. Listen to me. Bay City Outreach Center as an organization... Hope is on the way. Your mission is not over. Your mission is simply stepping into something greater and greater and greater. In the next two years, you will look back on these moments and you will see what God was doing all along. Was increasing your influence, not just in Hastings, but in the world. Water's turning red. Let me speak to your families. No matter, what, no matter what your situation is in your family, you might have given up. You might be, as a husband, blaming your wife for everything. You might be, as a wife, blaming your husband for everything. You might be being critical. You might be looking around and seeing all the problems with everybody else. You might be doing that. And I would say to you, stop. That is cutting off your hope flow. You go find the river of hope. There's a river called hope flowing somewhere in your situation. You just got to go get it. I would also say to you that when you find the river of hope, may you keep the fire of gratitude lit deep in your heart. See, see Pastor Mike brought up this earlier about Leviticus. It says that the, the, the altar in the tabernacle, God gave the fire. But but the truth is, but then it says, but the priest had to keep it going. In other words, God is only responsible to give you the fire once. The rest of it is your responsibility to keep it going by keeping the ash cleaned out. See, this is, we don't want to offer back to Jesus a dirty Roman sponge. Now, what I want you to do now is, I want us to have about a 60 second moment with God. If you're here today, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to take the next 60 seconds and I want you to do business with God. I want you to get this thing settled inside of yourself. I want you to become aware of blood in the water and, and, and hope and suffering. But I also want you to have a moment where you repent and renounce any actions or attitudes that is really a dirty Roman sponge. And while they're doing that, if you're here today and you've not yet made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to do so. It's not the words of any prayer that will ever save you. It's the response to God in your heart. And right now, you could feel God knocking on the door of your heart. You could sense it, and you know, I need to respond to this kind, loving, compassionate, gracious person. And while the believers in Jesus Christ are doing their business with God, if you need to respond to that today, I'd love to help you. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. I'm simply going to pray for you right where you are. Is there anybody who says, Shane, I need to make that decision this morning? If that's you, would you raise your hand? I see you there in the middle. That is awesome. I see you over there on the right. That is fantastic. I see you way over there on the right. That is fantastic. It takes a lot of bravery to raise your hand. Even though it's the only decision you'll ever make that everybody will be happy for you, it's still brave. I'm proud of you. Anybody else join those three Says say, Shane, I need, to, I need to make that decision. This is serious. This is very serious business. I can feel God just calling me in, in, inside my heart. I need to respond. Anybody at all? Anybody else? Last time I'm asking, I see you there. That is fantastic. I see you over there. Fantastic. And over here, fantastic to my left. That is so great. That is so great. It's the best decision you'll ever make. It's the start of your journey. Anybody else? Last time I'm asking. Great. Then what I want us to do is I want all of us to pray this prayer out loud after me with some go all blacks gusto. Okay? Okay? All right, no shyness. This isn't a shy place. Let me just tell you something. I love this place. This, there's something about this place that nourishes my soul, okay? And, and it's, part of it is the energy in it. So I want all of us to pray this prayer out loud after me. It's not the specific words of any prayer that ever save you. It's the response to God in your heart. I just want to put some feet around it, okay? And everybody's going to pray this prayer out loud, and you just join in because this is your prayer, your moment, your time. And it goes like this. My Lord Jesus Christ... Thank you for coming. Thank you for dying for me. I confess that I'm a sinner. I have no hope of saving myself. So I ask you, Lord, to forgive me, cleanse me, come into my life, be the Lord of it. And Lord, now I ask that you would bring hope to every place I'm suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I want to take a second. Let's pray for each other. Would you grab the hand of your neighbor? Would you grab the hand? If, if you feel comfortable with them, grab their hand. If they creep you out, don't worry about it. All right. Would you grab the hand of your neighbor? And I want you to begin to pray for the person on your left. Would you pray for the person on your left that hope would flow in their situation? Whatever they're going through, let hope flow into it. Would you believe God for them? If they're sick in their body, speak hope. If their family's in turmoil, hope. If they're looking for a job, hope. Peace, love, hope flows in their situation. Now, would you pray for the person on your right? Begin to pray for the person on your right. Let hope flow in that situation. Let hope flow in that situation. Speak hope in the name of God into that situation. Let the presence of God come over them. Oh yeah, let the presence of God come over them. Now let's begin to believe together for our church. Lord, we pray for this church. Let this church be a dwelling place for your name. The compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love God. May this entire community be touched by the environment that is in this place. Let the environment in this place multiply through this community through every person sitting here. Lord, we speak death and we renounce any criticism against this place. Any criticism, we speak death to those words. Any criticism against any leader here. Any any scandal, anything like that. Lord, we, we speak death to that. We speak, we will not allow those things to be spoken. We will live a different way. We will live a different way. May the demonstration of our behavior, may it show forth into this community that this place is, in fact, the dwelling place for the name In Jesus name. Bless us with that. Amen. Would you look this way? Thank you so much uh, for letting me be your guest this weekend. It, it has ministered to me um, as much as it's ministered to you. Um, maybe more. I love this place. As long as they see fit to keep having me, I'll keep coming back. And it's because I journey in the spirit of this place. There's something, listen to me, there's something. I I travel the world, okay? I'm in a different church every week. There's something about the environment in this place that nourishes the soul. You won't know it until you didn't have it. I'm in a listen. Sometimes, if I could, I'm speak, give you sixty seconds from right here. Sometimes you don't know what you don't have, what you don't know what you do have till you don't have it. And when that happens, you take something for granted. It's normal. Moses parted the Red Sea, turned around, and, and destroyed the entire mightiest army in the world in one swoop. Three days later, the people forgot what they had, and they were going to kill him simply because they were hungry. When you don't, when you forget what you have, you lose sight of things. Now, listen to me. I travel the world. I know what I'm talking about. I am not an expert in many things, but I'm an expert in church environment and in pastors. And I can tell you, you have one of the greatest churches in the world right here in Hastings, New Zealand. There's something about this place that if you allow it, it nourishes the soul. Never, ever, ever lose sight of the grace that God's given you simply by the fact that you're sitting here. Now, I'd like to invite you back tonight um, to be our guest. I've, I've, I've been speaking all week and, I've le- and it's leading us up to one moment tonight. Tonight is the single most important message I ever preach in the whole world. And uh, pastors all over this world are telling me, Shane, that has to go out. That has to. It's changing the way we're doing life. It's changing the way we're doing church. I'd like you to invite you back. Please do not miss tonight to stay home and watch NCIS, okay? Listen, <laughs> l- listen, let me help you with this. Gibbs gets the bad guy, always. He always does. He's very clever, Gibbs, okay? Very, very clever, all right? And so, and so you've got TiVo, you've got all kinds of stuff now, you've got DVRs. If you don't have a DVR, go get one. It's 2010, okay? You could do that and, 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 and record your programs. I'm telling you, tonight will be the single most important message I could ever preach to you. I'd like for you to be my guest. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of your life this weekend. I'll turn the service now back over. Praise the Lord. Come on, let's give Shane a great clap. Shane, we just love you. Thank you for coming. Enjoy your ministry. My goodness, what insights we've been getting about the cross. Every time I hear new things about the cross, I feel very deeply touched, very deeply touched. Father, we just thank you. You love us. Thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Thank you for the river of your spirit that flows in this place may we be strengthened built and enlarged by it to become the people you want us to be and to influence the community as your representatives father we thank you for Shane we pray you bless him nurture him encourage him strengthen him lord we give you the honor amen